Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, this is Max. I'm uh, one of the producers on Stay Tuned, and I want to tell you about a podcast that all of us over here have been enjoying. It's called Pod Save the People. It's with DeRay McKesson. He's an uh, educator and an activist. Most people uh, know him from his criminal justice protests, but the show is so much more. Each week, DeRay and three other black activists talk about the week's news through their lens. We have learned a lot around here uh, by listening to their analysis on everything from school funding to criminal justice to lead poisoning. DeRay also interviews someone uh, every episode. They've had Vanita Gupta on the show, John Legend, Katy Perry, Tracy Ellis Ross, Senators Gillibrand and Booker. It's a rich discussion about hope, activism, and personal stories, and it gives you a whole new lens on the world. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Here, stay tuned. From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Americans have power in a democracy, and if we stay focused on this issue, if we get educated, if we use our voices and our votes, we can enact real change and elect a Congress that won't rely on thoughts and prayers every time there's a mass shooting tragedy. That's Shannon Watts. She's the founder of Moms Demand Action, an organization that takes on gun violence in America. After the shooting in Parkland, Florida, there has been a serious conversation about what we can do to prevent these kinds of massacres from happening again. I'm especially pleased to have Shannon on the program this week because there's so much misinformation, so much rhetoric over the issue of guns in America and gun violence in our country that it's good to have somebody who knows her stuff, who's steeped in the facts, who's steeped in the issues. I can think of no one better to have on the show at this time than Shannon Watts. That's coming up, but first, let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. This is Greg from Vancouver, Canada. News has just broke that Mueller has dropped 24 charges against Rick Gates, and I would like to hear your opinion about this. It seems that he has Manafort dead to rights, so I'm curious, what is it that Gates might have to be able to get such a great deal? Keep up the great work. Thanks very much. Greg, thanks for your question. So with respect to Manafort, I think if you look at the charging documents and you look at the specificity of the charges— and you look at how straightforward they are, the case against Manafort is extremely strong. It was extremely strong before Gates pled out and decided to cooperate, but it's even stronger after the guilty plea and the pledge to cooperate. Why do I think the case against Manafort is so strong? Because it doesn't seem, with respect to a lot of the charges, that there's a lot of defense that he can bring to bear in court. You know, you either got income and paid your taxes or you didn't. You either had a bank account in a foreign country and admitted it, or you didn't. I mean, there are even emails that are recited in one of the indictments that shows that Paul Manafort lied to his own accountant. You know, a typical defense that people use is they blame their accountant for making false representations or taking deductions that they shouldn't have taken. In this case, there's an actual exchange cited in the indictment between Paul Manafort and his accountant, where the accountant asks, do you have any such accounts in foreign countries? To which Paul Manafort directly responds, No. So the question is, then why such a sweet deal for Rick Gates? There's a couple of reasons why that might be. Number one, Rick Gates could have information about other people, including the president, including Jared Kushner and others, because he was on the campaign for a period of time. We don't know what the fruit of his conversations with Bob Mueller may lead to. 
So it's all speculation at this point. Separate and apart from what he might have about other people, it's still helpful to have him as a narrator, cooperating witness at the trial against Paul Manafort. And even though the case against Paul Manafort seems very strong, when you're talking about an important trial that's now been set, I believe, for September 17th of this year, the special counsel really can't afford to lose the trial. The world is watching. It's high stakes. Uh, there's a lot of you know, criticism of the fact of the investigation to begin with. And if the likelihood of success against Paul Manafort is, say, 90% without Gates and flipping Gates and getting him to cooperate and testify for you as the government brings that up to 96 or 97%, it's probably worth it in the minds of the prosecutors. The last point, which may be a little bit inside baseball, you know, my office did not used to handle guilty pleas of cooperators in this way. If we charge somebody with 20 counts and they chose to plead guilty and cooperate, we made them plead guilty to all the counts or they could go pound sand. Now, that's not the way it's done in every U.S. attorney's office in the country and appears not to be the way it's being done by Bob Mueller's office. And, you know, there are, there are lots of things to commend that practice. We, you know, generally thought our practice was better. It was a little bit tougher to get cooperation in some ways. But you had a much better witness at trial because he didn't look like he was getting a sweetheart deal. He was pleading guilty to everything that we charged him with. And we often made them plead guilty to things that we might not have been able to charge them with, but that they admitted was other bad conduct. And that way, they have made a transformation from being a criminal to somebody who has turned the corner and fessed up to all their sins. And then it's left up to the judge to decide what the sentence was going to be. That's the longstanding practice in the Southern District of New York, not necessarily followed elsewhere. And it looks like the Mueller team is going a little bit the more traditional route of dropping numerous counts against someone in exchange for their cooperation. So this is another one of those weeks in the United States of America where so many things have happened, so much news has broken, it's impossible for me to address all of them or even most of them at length on the show, even though a lot of the issues are in really the wheelhouse of the show and things that I care about. But let me, let me try to tick off a few quickly. And it seems like these things happened weeks ago, but all the following things happened this week. First, at long last, the Democratic response memo to the Nunes memo, you know, authored by ranking member Adam Schiff, was released. The upshot of it is that it was a much more careful, much more balanced, much more pointed document of 10 pages than the haphazardly written and misleading memo put out by Devin Nunes' majority. Among other things, it is made clear once again that it was not the Steele dossier that started the investigation of Carter Page. It also makes clear that in a very real and significant way, the FISA court was given information about the political leanings and, and the political objectives of people who had been involved in the Steele dossier. So the idea that there's this atrocious misleading of the court seems to be very significantly undermined if you believe what's in the Schiff memo. Here's the second thing that happened just a couple of days later. Jared Kushner seems to have lost his top secret security clearance. That's a big deal for somebody who is supposed to be solving the Middle East crisis and about 17 other issues that require just in the course of doing your job on a day-to-day -day basis to have access to every kind of intelligence that the White House personnel need to have to solve those problems or begin to solve those problems, particularly when you're the son-in-law of the president of the United States, that's really significant. There has been reporting that Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, made a call to the White House to tell White House counsel Don McGahn that there were going to be significant problems and delays in trying to resolve the security clearance for Jared Kushner. Now, I don't want to unduly speculate, but you know, Jared Kushner does appear to be under investigation by the special counsel's office based on his dealings with foreign governments, including Russia. And so I don't know exactly what the content of the conversation was between Rod Rosenstein and Don McGahn, but it's conceivable it's a lot more ominous than just some bureaucratic snafus. And then third... Just literally as I was walking over the studio on Wednesday morning to tape this Q&A, I saw the tweet by Donald Trump, and it reads as follows. Why is AG Jeff Sessions asking the inspector general to investigate potentially massive FISA abuse? Will take forever, has no prosecutorial power, and already late with reports on Comey, etc. Isn't the IG an Obama guy? Why not use Justice Department lawyers? Disgraceful. That's in all caps with an exclamation mark. Just quickly, number one, 
the inspector general is someone I happen to know who's actually an alum of the Southern District of New York. Michael Horowitz, who's a straight shooting guy, is respected by both sides of the aisle. To the question, why not use Justice Department lawyers? The IG is, in fact, a Justice Department lawyer. So I don't think it's disgraceful. Far from it. It's the way that the department polices itself. That was true when we did the U.S. Attorney firing investigation from 10 years ago. That was true in the Fast and Furious fiasco a few years later. That's the way it's done. And Donald Trump seems to be trying to take the one remaining bastion of independence within what's supposed to be an independent agency like the Department of Justice and politicize that as well. The other thing that occurs to me is there doesn't seem to be, based on the Schiff memo and other things you happen to know about how the law works and how the FISA court works, to be any evidence at all of FISA abuse, much less massive FISA abuse. And my final point is, I don't know why Donald Trump is communicating with his attorney general through tweets using all caps. I'm pretty confident that Jeff Sessions would take his call, even if some people would not. So those are just a few of the things that happened this week that I tried to address very quickly. But by far, the biggest issue that continues to roil the country, and I think properly so, is the aftermath of the shootings in Parkland, Florida, where 17 innocent people lost their lives because someone shot them with an AR-15. And so that's the reason why we today are going to have an extended interview with Shannon Watts, the founder of Moms Demand Action. We're going to go a little bit longer this week than we usually do because I think there are so many issues to deal with, so many proposals to address and discuss. It's a great conversation and really well worth your time. I myself learned a number of things that I had not understood, known, and appreciated before. And I think it will help you think about the debate and think about how you might want to get involved yourself. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Shannon Watts, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So it's been an interesting week or two, right? It is. It has been both horrifically tragic and devastating, and at the same time, there feels like a silver lining of hope. Well, are we in a, in a real moment of change here? Is it a watershed, or is it just a fleeting moment like, like lots of other fleeting moments have been? It doesn't feel fleeting. And, and you know, I'll just say this. I've been working on this now for five years. I don't know that any moment is fleeting. I think they all build upon one another. People get educated about what the problem is in this country. They decide to get off the sidelines, sometimes slowly, sometimes in mass. But to me, this feels different because I think Americans are so fed up. I mean, this horrific mass school shooting was a mass shooting in line with so many others over the past couple of years, especially since Donald Trump was elected. I mean, we had the worst mass shooting in our nation's history in Las Vegas. So I think Americans were already angry and outraged at the inaction of lawmakers. And when this happened, they were ready to go. Everyone is looking for a cathartic moment in Congress where we can all sort of, you know, clap and and say, okay, we did what we needed to do. I don't know that this issue will result in that way. You know, we have a a Congress, too many of whom are beholden to the NRA, and a president who received over $30 million in campaign contributions from the NRA. To imagine that they're all going to have a change of heart overnight is probably unrealistic. But what is realistic is to know that Americans have power in a democracy. And if we stay focused on this issue, if we get educated, if we use our voices and our votes, and we look at the midterms, we can enact real change and elect a Congress that won't rely on thoughts and prayers every time there's a mass shooting tragedy. You talked about people getting off the sidelines. Why don't you explain to folks who are not familiar how that happened to you five years ago, what you were doing and what you started and what you've accomplished? I'm a mom of five, and I can remember folding laundry as I was watching TV the day of the Sandy Hook tragedy in 2012. And CNN started saying, it looks like there's a school shooting, and it did not look good. And I can remember saying out loud, dear God, please let this not be as bad as it seems. And 
In retrospect, as we all know, it was a million times worse than really anyone can fathom that 20 babies and six of their educators would be slaughtered in the sanctity of an elementary school was devastating. But then to hear pundits and lawmakers immediately get on television and say, well, you know, the solution is is more guns. Right. And now is not the um, time. Now is not the time. And now it's not the time and thoughts and prayers and, you know, all of the pablum that goes along in, with shootings in this country. I then became very angry and agitated. And the next morning I woke up and I thought, you know, I'm going to look online for something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but for gun safety. But had you, had I, you been involved in anything relating to gun safety or gun shootings before? No, I hadn't even been political other than to donate to campaigns. I was a communications executive at several Fortune 500 companies. I had taken a few years off because I have five kids. I had no knowledge of not only federal gun laws, but my own state at the time I lived in Indiana. I just knew that as a mom, our country was broken. And I had sort of two options, which was one to figure out how to move a family of seven to another country or to stay and fight. And so I spent about an hour looking online. I couldn't find what I was looking for. And I thought, well, you know, I know how to start a Facebook page. Maybe I can just have an online conversation with other like-minded moms and women. And I had 75 Facebook uh, friends at the time. So it wasn't like I was super connected. But what happened was amazing. I can remember a man I knew on Facebook but didn't know in person who lived in Virginia and was a gun owner connected me with a friend he had in Brooklyn who had just posted something similar on her own Facebook page, which was, we need moms to activate on this issue. And things like that just kept happening over and over and over. And a week later, I was on the cover of USA Today. And just weeks after that, we got a call from the White House who said, look, we've been waiting for women and moms to organize around this issue. Will you help us push background checks through Congress? And the rest is history. We are a huge grassroots movement now with a chapter in every single state of the country, over 100,000 active volunteers. And just to put that in context, Mothers Against Drunk Driving has been around since the 80s. They only have 15,000 active volunteers. And we have 4 million members in conjunction with Every Town for Gun Safety. We're their grassroots arm. But you take dads too. We take all caring <laughs> Americans. I, there's nothing I love more than seeing a man wearing a Moms to Man action shirt. Let's talk about Parkland, then I want to talk about the NRA, and then I want to talk about various proposals and what the facts are around them, because I think there's a lot of rhetoric swirling around, and, and a lot of people who are not as versed in this as you or the people who, you know, fight on the other side. There's just, a, there's a lot of misinformation out there. But first, on Parkland, how did you feel when you saw that unfolding, given that you had started your organization in the wake of Newtown? I think the text started coming in late afternoon. Uh, that there had been a shooting at a high school in Florida. And I thought, okay, let's hope this is not as horrific as Sandy Hook. Let's hope that, you know, this is uh, a mistake, that maybe a gun went off. And then I remember getting the text that they were setting up tents. And having done this for five years, I know what that means. I mean, it means that they're triaging bodies. Every time this happens, I'm amazed and shocked. But at the same time, what people don't realize is 96 Americans are shot and killed in this country every single day. You know, you divide that by four, which is the definition of a mass shooting, uh, four victims, not including the shooter. And you have over 20 mass shootings like this every single day in this country. But individual shootings separated by time and by geography don't focus and transfix, you know, the nation's mind in the same way, right? So when something like Parkland happens, everyone focuses. What did you think about the kids who began speaking about it? I thought what was so amazing in the aftermath of this horrific tragedy was we suddenly saw a very clear call to action from the entire community. You know, in the past, in these horrific national shooting tragedies, you hear from a parent or two or a survivor or maybe a community member who says, you know, we need stronger gun laws. What we saw in the wake of Parkland was an entire community coming together with one very specific clear call to action, which was for lawmakers to pass stronger gun laws that would protect Americans. I think that's why this shooting in particular has stayed in the national spotlight for so long. It helps, though, to have really smart, passionate, 
uh, articulate 16 and 17 year olds sending the message out on television, on social media. I mean, I, that seems to me that that's mm-hmm. a little bit what's different about the message going out. And the outrage and passion of those voices is really piercing, no? When you think back to the shooting at Sandy Hook, you know, these were babies, right? They were first, second, third graders or survivors, and they didn't really have a voice. They couldn't speak out for stronger gun laws. That was on their parents who were dealing with unbelievable grief. We're talking from Parkland about teens who are almost adults who have lived their whole lives believing that active shooters are acts of nature like earthquakes or fires. And I think now that they're adults, they're rightfully outraged that these are actually acts of man. They're acts of cowardice. They're inaction by lawmakers who decided that they would put gun lobby profits over the safety of people. And these teenagers who we're hearing speak out and demand stronger gun laws are so eloquent and so passionate, so smart about this issue. It's astounding. The people in the government who were voted into power are lying to us. And us kids seem to be the only ones who notice and are prepared to call BS. Companies trying to make caricatures of the teenagers nowadays, saying that all we are is self involved and trend obsessed and they hush us into submissions when our message doesn't reach the ears of the nation we are prepared to call bs politicians politicians who sit in their gilded house and senate seats funded by the nra telling us nothing could have ever been done to prevent this we call bs one of the high school students emma gonzalez who gave a powerful speech that went viral soon after the shooting uh, every time she surpasses a certain milestone in Twitter followers, people noted. I think she she passed the NRA recently, and then a day later she passed in followers the number that the NRA spokeswoman Dana Lesh has. I've ne- you know you, you've never seen anything like it. My my question though is, do you worry at all that that people are putting too much pressure and weight on the words of these high school students to carry us forward? Uh, you know what I mean. You know, I'm a, I'm a parent too. I have, yeah. do, do you have any concerns at all about, and it's, I, I'm asking it in a good faith way, because I'm, yes. I'm incredibly moved and inspired by these kids. But do you worry a little bit that we're putting too much on the weight of these kids, or is that the way it should be? Of course I worry. You know, I'm the mom of a 17-year-old boy whose biggest concern right now is what score he'll get on his ACTs and where he's going to get into college. If he had just witnessed the murder of his friends and teachers... I can't even imagine that horrific pressure on top of being put in a national spotlight to talk about an incredibly complicated issue. I am amazed and very supportive of what these students are doing, but I also call on every American to get off the sidelines to do their part, right? This can't all be put on a handful of students who have to heal from this horrific tragedy. We have to give them the space to do whatever it is they end up needing to do. And I'm so grateful that they stepped out in the aftermath of this tragedy and that they are leading this movement, and I'm happy to follow them. But as a parent, I also want people to protect them and to do their part, because this shouldn't all be on these teens. When the dust settles after one of these shootings, sometimes there are inconvenient truths about what happened that don't serve one side or another to the extent there are sides. And i tend to believe that you know, there shouldn't be really. And that, you know, sometimes some facts that emerge don't fit a narrative for the people who think that the solution is tougher gun laws or for people who think the solution is more guns in schools or whatever the case may be. And one unfortunate series of facts that have come out about this, I think we need to be, I think no matter what side you're on, you need to be very honest about the failures that happened. You want to be careful to make sure that all the facts have come out first but, you know, I, I find it troubling. I can have a lot of views and share many of your views about how we should change the gun laws. But it also appears that you had a sheriff's deputy, at least one, and maybe others, who didn't do what logic tells you they should have done. And there's some you know, debate about whether or not they got a stand-down order, but they didn't go into the school. The sheriff, you know, that, that some of the things he, you know, may have done or some of the training that may have happened wasn't sufficient. What do you have to say about the sheriff's performance in this? 
You know, I don't disagree with you. I think the details and the facts are still coming out and, and we need to wait for the dust to settle and understand exactly what happened. You know, my guess is this is a, a guard whose job mainly was to break up fights at a school. Most security is not expected to take on uh, a teen with bulk ammo, semi-automatic rifles, and tactical gear. And so we don't really know yet, I don't think, why he didn't go into that school, which was his job. The idea that the solution is to arm teachers or volunteers as opposed to disarming dangerous people like this teenager is putting it completely backwards. Uh, No other developed nation is dealing with this crisis. Was there a failure in law enforcement or a failure by law enforcement when we keep hearing every day additional red flags you know, come to the fore and, and other warning signs were there and calls were made. And I think we should be honest about it. Even if you think that the gun law should be changed, the fact that there was a law enforcement failure, to my mind, doesn't mean that we don't need gun law changes. But I think in this debate, we should be honest when there's a law enforcement failure. Was there one here? I don't know that we know that yet. I think all of the facts aren't out, but I would say that a lot of red flags were not acted on. That said, This was a 19-year-old who had legally been buying semi-automatic rifles and ammunition since he was 18. And if you look at the shooting at UCSB that happened in this country, uh, the mass shooting, those parents knew that their son was armed and dangerous, either to himself or others. And they had told police in California over and over again. And the police said, look, there's nothing we can do to remove this person's guns. We're not legally allowed. And that's why after the shooting at UCSB, we went in and passed what's called a red flag law. And we've passed them in other states since. Florida does not have that law. Explain explain to the listeners what you mean by a red flag law. A red flag law allows families or police to petition a judge to get a restraining order to temporarily remove the guns of someone who seems to be a danger to themselves or others. And we have those laws in five states right now. Um, we've helped pass three of them. They're effective. I mean, if you look at the law in Connecticut, we know, for example, that it has stopped over 77 suicides from happening. But it also could have been deployed at this case in Florida where police could have petitioned for a restraining order to remove this kid's guns. The laws as written in the various states, are they, are they very similar in language? They are. And they're in place in California, Washington, Oregon, Indiana, and Connecticut. They are being considered in 18 other states right now. And if Florida, in your view, if Florida had such a law, parents or others would have been able to act pursuant to the law to take parents away or the police. Ver- or police to take away, at least temporarily, the guns by the shooter in Parkland. Yes. I keep hearing people from the NRA, including their spokesperson, say there are certain people who shouldn't have had a gun. And this guy who's alternately described, you know, as a maniac, a monster, et cetera, which maybe he was, shouldn't have had the gun. But on this question of red flag laws that allow a process by which you can take a gun away from somebody who seems dangerous to himself or to others, what has been the NRA's official position with respect to each red flag statute? The NRA has opposed every single attempt in all five states to pass red flag laws. For example, in Oregon, when we helped pass the law last year, uh, the NRA claimed it was anti-gun and a slippery slope to confiscation. There is no law that I know of that the NRA actually does support that would address this issue. They're saying they support fixed NICs, but they also said they supported the prohibition of bump stocks in the wake of Las Vegas, and we saw how that turned out. So uh, the NRA opposes red flag laws. They oppose laws to disarm domestic abusers. We recently fought the NRA for three years in Rhode Island to pass a law that would disarm domestic abusers, and they put out a press release saying that sometimes women lie about abuse, and so we would be taking guns away from, from people who shouldn't have them removed. They are insidious, and they are blocking any attempts at gun safety in this country. Can we talk? Let's talk about the NRA for a few minutes. I think there's not as much information, understanding of the NRA, in part because of the nonsense spewed by people who speak on behalf of the NRA to try to make themselves out to be something more innocuous than they are. I I got into an exchange with Dana Lesh on Twitter over this absurd pronouncement she made that the NRA is not a lobbying group. She referred to the NRA as a fellowship of gun owners. Lots and lots of people pointed out that the NRA is, in fact, a lobbying group. There is an arm of it that's internal to the NRA 
called the Institute for Legislative Action that technically does the lobbying work, but the NRA is actually the registrant on lobbying forms filed, you know, with the federal government. The NRA has as its leader, Wayne LaPierre, who is himself a registered lobbyist. So, you know, part of the point of that, it's not the most important thing in the world that the NRA lobbies or doesn't. It's the lying and falsification of, you know, what the NRA does to try to make them seem innocuous, right? How do you describe what the NRA is? The NRA calls itself the oldest civil rights organization in America, which is laughable. They are absolutely a lobbying organization. They have an annual budget of $350 million. That includes not just lobbying, but also television channels and magazines, a whole plethora of marketing efforts to sell guns. And they also gave about $55 million in campaign contributions in 2016, which they won't say where most of it came from. They don't have to. Um, and in fact, they won't say that it didn't come from Russia. And look, we don't believe the NRA has 5 million members. They've been saying that number forever. Interestingly, it hasn't gone up. Reporters have dug into this and found that they think many of the, the members are actually no longer living or they signed up when they bought a gun for discounts. We do not believe the NRA has 5 million members. And in fact, the NRA could have zero members and still be incredibly effective because they have this huge budget from gun manufacturers. They do not rely on on membership or dues. And in fact, the members have very little power themselves. They don't decide on the agenda. I think it's important, and some of the students have been saying this, and I want to hear what you have to say. When people talk about the NRA, spokespeople for the NRA like to take that as an attack on you know individual gun owners who are law-abiding. How do you separate in your mind what you say about the NRA versus what you say about people who lawfully own guns. Right. So we always say NRA leaders or NRA lobbyists. We're not talking about NRA members, 74% of whom support stronger gun laws, according to polling done by Republican pollster Frank Luntz. But I also want to make it clear that a vast majority of gun owners in this country don't belong to the NRA. About one in 10 of every gun owners belongs to the NRA. So Again, they are not powerful because they have membership. In fact, when Moms Demand Action goes and advocates for stronger gun laws in state houses, it's almost always dozens or hundreds of us versus one NRA lobbyist. How much money does the NRA get from the profit-motivated gun manufacturers in the country? They are not very clear about how much money they get and where it comes from. And unfortunately, they don't have to be very transparent. But we believe a vast majority of the $350 million annual budget the NRA has comes from gun manufacturers. Does the NRA make any statement at all about what they get from gun manufacturers? They don't. The fact that they gave $55 million in campaign contributions in 2016 versus the $28 million they gave the year before, um, it seems very suspicious. Here's what I want to do, because there's so many proposals out there and so many different things that people talk about. I want to take advantage of your expertise and go through a whole list of them. And for each, if you could, give us a sense of whether it's a good idea or not, and whether the prospect of achieving that particular change is good, bad, or ugly. <laughs> we, we've talked a little bit already about the uh, red flag statutes. Just g give us a, a very quick rundown of what you think the outlook for that kind of statute is in other states and federally going forward? I think that red flag laws are an incredibly effective way to disarm people who may be a danger to themselves or others. That includes due process, and it's temporary, but it's a very important tool for families and for law enforcement. Uh, we are working on promoting these laws across the country. Yesterday, uh, the governor of Ro Rhode Island, Governor Raimondo, signed an executive order uh, didn't even pass it through the legislature, sign an executive order. She said she hopes that the state legislature will pass this law, but she isn't going to wait. And this could be a federal law. But is, is there a bill pending? Is there a bill pending in the Congress? Uh, I don't believe a bill has been introduced yet. No, there were, we, we, we are hearing that senators are working on a federal bill, but it will be interesting to see if the NRA leadership will support or oppose. Okay, so that's red flag statutes. How about the discussion about raising the age for gun ownership or certain kinds of gun ownership? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's 
something that states and Congress should consider. We look at the data and it shows that adults between the ages of 18 and 20 are four times more likely to commit murder than those over the age of 21. But I also think it's a a cultural issue, right? We don't allow 18-year-olds to buy alcohol. So why are we allowing them to buy rifles? Well, you know, alcohol alcohol consumption is not a constitutional right. uh, Yeah, trust me. I've had that conversation a lot. But uh, (laughs) Well, look, it's, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I think that the age should be raised. But when you debate the issue, it is true. And whether you like the Second Amendment or not, there it is. Right. But the Heller decision also said the Second Amendment can be regulated. So if we want the age to be 21 instead of 18, we can do that. Okay, let's move on to um, waiting periods. Currently, give a quick overview of whether or not there is, and in what context, a waiting period for buying a firearm and what further can be done about that. You know, waiting periods have kind of gone out of popularity because I don't know that they've been proven to be that effective. Well, that's interesting. So because... Do you think the science and empirical study shows that they're not effective? Because some people think exactly. off the top of their head, it might prevent more suicides because people, or crimes of passion, because people impulsively go and get the gun to commit a crime. But you, you don't find, that's an interesting thing, that you don't find that so effective. Everything we do is based on research and data. Waiting periods do not necessarily bear out that they are going to prevent suicides or murders uh, with guns. So... In many ways, that background check does serve the same purpose. Got it. I'm going to get to background checks in a moment. You mentioned research and that you make your recommendations based on, on research. One controversial issue is that uh, the CDC Centers for Disease Control are by law not permitted to do any kind of research into the, the damage that guns do as a public health matter. Does that matter at all? Can that change? Should that research be allowed or is that sort of just a talking point? It doesn't matter so much. Of course it should be allowed. So, interestingly, the, the NRA put pressure on Congress to stop funding CDC research after the CDC found that having a gun actually makes you less safe. And as soon as that research data came out decades ago, the NRA very quickly moved into action to put a quash on that research. And as a result, we have a very hard time in this country understanding exactly what our gun violence crisis is and how we solve it. And it's really up to organizations like ours to do that research now. What about bump stocks? Uh, A lot of people didn't know what a bump stock was until the massacre in Las Vegas. Explain very quickly what it is and whether there can be some change there and and does it matter so much? Bump stocks are a technology that can be put on semi-automatic rifles that essentially turn them into automatic weapons or machine guns. And of course, they should not be legal, especially after they were used during the worst mass shooting in our nation's history in Las Vegas. Uh, The fact that Congress and the president still haven't acted four months later is disgraceful. The president continues to act as though he supports a ban. And yet what he's done is turn this over to the DOJ. It will remain to be seen if they will act. This is something Congress could vote on and outlaw immediately and haven't. But are you relatively optimistic about that? I, I feel like, just in listening to the airwaves, that there seems to be more consensus, perhaps because it's such a simple, narrow thing, but more consensus on banning bump stocks and a lot of other things. Um, I don't disagree, but my impression is that Congress does not trust the DOJ to own and, and make this happen, and instead would like a vote, and, and that's not happening. Okay. All right, now let's, let's talk about background checks. It's complicated, because there are some kinds of sales that require a background check and other kinds of sales that don't. Explain quickly to the uninitiated what the current state of play is. When the Brady Bill was passed in the 90s, um, there was no online marketplace. And the NRA fought very hard for a carve-out for gun shows that they wouldn't have to perform background checks. As a result, background checks in this country are only required on licensed sales. So if you go to Walmart, you have to have a background check. However, if you go to a gun show or make a purchase online and arrange to meet that person in person and make the transaction, and even in some states at garage sales, you can sell guns with absolutely no background check. And that's how millions of guns are sold every year. Right. So a retail sale by a, an outlet requires a background check, but gun shows do not, and private sales right. do not. They're, they are not considered licensed dealers, even though a person at a gun show may sell thousands of guns every year. And do you have a sense, 
backed by data of what percentage of gun sales fall into those loopholes, in other words, that are, don't, do not require a background check? It's, it's very difficult to quantify because there's no track record, but we believe millions of guns are sold that way every year. And if you are a prohibited purchaser, if you are a domestic abuser or a felon, or you've been adjudicated mentally ill, the best way to get a gun, the easiest way to get a gun is to go to a gun show or to arrange it online. There's a statute that we enforced. I tried my first trial as an assistant U.S. attorney, which prevents a prior felon from possessing a firearm. But obviously, as you point out, if there's a whole market that doesn't require, uh, you know, a, a background check, if you have one of those prohibited characteristics, you can go there pretty easily. So what should change with respect to background checks in this country? There was a Manchin-Toomey bill between the senators, uh, Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey, that would have closed that loophole. And it was put forth after the shooting at Sandy Hook School. It failed by a handful of votes in the Senate. Senator Toomey was on television over the weekend saying that he was going to try to bring it back for a vote. But it would close that loophole on a federal level. 19 states have closed that background check loophole, eight since Sandy Hook. When you say they close it, they mean they have passed laws that require background checks with respect to all gun sales? Exactly. What is the argument that opponents use to vote against that? The NRA leader's argument is that background checks aren't effective and don't work. Now, I do want to say that in 1999, the NRA absolutely did support a background check on every gun sale. And as they began to sell more guns to fewer people, they realized that they had to open up their marketplace in every way in order to maintain their profit margins. And so that is why the NRA no longer supports background checks on every gun sale. In fact, they want to make it easy to get guns without a background check at all, which is why they've pushed for a permitless carry and helped pass it in a dozen states in this country. Has the NRA become more, I'm trying to think of what the word is to use, more militant in its opposition oh, uh, yes. over the years? And why is that? Is it because of the reason you just described? If part of the agenda is to make sure the gun manufacturers continue to have robust sales, they have to be on record as being opposed to things that might reduce sales? Mm -hmm. In the late 90s, the NRA supported background checks on every gun sale. They opposed guns in schools. And then what happened is they began to be pulled more to the right because there were other gun lobbying groups, because Congress was pulled to the right. But they also started selling more guns to fewer people. They've convinced their demographic, which is basically a white man in their 50s or 60s, that they need an arsenal. They need seven AR-15s and six Glocks. And yet other Americans weren't buying guns. And so they started to support guns in schools because they have to essentially market guns to the next generation by putting guns in K-12 through schools, guns on college campuses. They have to sell guns to women. And they have to make guns easily available. And thus, background checks are just an additional barrier that would prohibit them from selling guns. So let's predict the likelihood of success on fixing the loopholes with respect to background checks. How do you feel about that? We've closed the background check loophole in eight states in Sandy Hook. And it is something we can go state by state and do through ballot initiative and through state legislatures. And, and that's the work we're doing until we get the right Congress and president in place who will do that. The NRA opposes it. Uh, and they gave $30 million in campaign contributions to Donald Trump. They were one of the largest outside donors to his campaign. So the idea that Donald Trump is going to support background checks, closing that loophole is probably unlikely. What we have to do is focus on the midterms and, and get the right Congress and eventually the right president in place who will do that. What about um, the banning of certain kinds of weapons? I mean, there was an assault weapon ban in place for a number of years, but then at sunset. And there are people who say, I think they're backed up by some evidence, that it didn't reduce the rate of violent crime or gun crime in the country. What's your view on the effectiveness of any kind of assault weapon ban and the likelihood of success? Certainly, semi-automatic rifles put the mass in mass shootings. However, rifles are responsible for less than 3% of all gun homicides in this country, right? We know that background checks would actually save many more lives. In fact, in the 19 states where we pass background checks, gun violence is cut almost in half across the board. So while we don't oppose a so-called assault weapons ban, it is not a priority for us right now. And 
given the makeup of this Congress and our president, it is very unlikely to get very far. It's also a cultural issue, right? I mean, should civilians be walking around with semi-automatic rifles? Um, Here, where I live in Boulder, you can walk up and down Pearl Street, which is sort of the college thoroughfare, with an AR-15, but not with a dog. That seems a bit bizarre. So there, there is a database that anybody in law enforcement knows very well called NICS. And there's um, a great bill that rhymes, has a name that rhymes, called Fix NICS. Explain quickly what that is and whether that makes sense and what the likelihood of success there is. I think that bill has a pretty strong possibility of passing. It's basically a modest bipartisan bill. It would incentivize states and federal agencies to put all prohibiting records into the background check system, right? It's a baby step that enhances the background check system, but it doesn't do enough. It is a baby step when we need a big stride. But just to explain again further what it is, there are certain kinds of people who even under current law are not permitted to have a firearm. The problem is the databases against which even the subset of background checks are done sometimes don't have that information in it. Right. A good example is is this shooting in Sutherland Springs, where this man's domestic abuse history had not been put into the system. And likelihood of success, you think, is high? I do. So what's the top priority, having talked about a lot of different options, for groups like Moms Demand? Our priority as an organization is absolutely closing the background check loophole. When you look at the 19 states that have passed this law, you see gun violence almost cut in half, whether it's shootings of police, whether it's gun homicides, whether it's domestic homicides, even suicides. We know that background checks are an incredibly effective way to halt gun violence. And it needs to be a federal law, but in the meantime, we're going state by state. Can we predict a little bit? And you can be realistic or you can be very optimistic. You know, between now and six months from now, or now and 12 months from now, which of these things that you're talking about and advocating for do you think has a real shot at becoming law? It is very hard to predict, and it will depend on which way the winds are blowing for Congress and what they think the right thing to do is prior to the midterms uh, for their own job protection purposes. We're hearing Jeff Flake talk about a federal law that would raise the, the age on gun buyers. We're hearing Manchin, Toomey, talk about reigniting their bill to close the background check loophole. We're hearing about a fixed Nix law, which seems to have overwhelming support. So I am always hopeful that Congress will act in the wake of a tragedy. But I also want to point out there are two very dangerous gun bills, NRA priority bills winding their way through Congress right now. One would deregulate silencers, and one would permit concealed carry reciprocity. Explain the reciprocity one first, because I've been hearing from a lot of people being very upset about that. Yes. So concealed carry reciprocity would basically make the weakest link the law of the land to carry your permitted gun across the country. So for example, in Alabama, you can get a gun permit without safety training, without live fire experience, You don't have to be 21 years old. You can be a convicted stalker. You can have a history of violence convictions. You can have a history of abusing your dating partners. And you can have DUIs in your history and still get a permit in the state of Alabama. You would then be able to take that permit anywhere in the country. Like my state, New York, that has has much stronger prohibitions on getting a license. Any state, yes. And so suddenly, these people who may be dangerous and armed are everywhere. And we're talking about millions of tourists who go not only to New York and San Francisco and, you know, other other cities, but even places like New Mexico, right? It could triple the amount of gun carriers up to 3 million per year yeah, who, terrible are, who are visiting from out of state. Who's responsible for that bill? This is the NRA's dream. They have been trying to pass it for almost 20 years. They've failed it every single time, but they've never had a Republican Congress and president in place before. As you heard Donald Trump when he was talking to survivors the other day after the Parkland shooting, he brought it up as a solution when, in fact, it is just a moneymaker for gun manufacturers. Who are the principal congressional sponsors? Cornyn in Texas, Senator Cornyn. Okay, so people can call John Cornyn's office about that, right? 
That's right. But more importantly, they can call every Dem senator to vote against it because if we can get senators like Senator Donnelly in Indiana and Senator Tester in Montana and other places where this isn't necessarily an easy vote um, to do the right thing, then we can kill this bill. I just want to make one thing clear that a lot of what we're talking about here is not necessarily a partisan Democrat versus Republican issue. There are a lot of Democratic senators who I'm guessing are not, you know, tops in your book because they come from places where there's, you know, a very significant gun culture. So it's, it's not always true, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a while since I worked in the Senate, that for the kinds of things that you're advocating, that every Democrat is a guaranteed vote in favor. Am I wrong? No, you're right. But, but let me give you an example of someone who's been, I think, a hero on this. Senator Claire McCaskill is in a tough state. She's in Missouri. Uh, they passed permitless carry just a couple of years ago. And Donald Trump won by, I think, 17% in the state of Missouri. And yet she's already gone on record saying she will vote against concealed carry reciprocity. And it might jeopardize her seat. That's absolutely. But we're hopeful, you know, th- that's the benefit of having a, a grassroots army, is that when she comes out and says she'll do the right thing, we will have her back when she's up for re-election. What about the silencer bill? So the NRA would like to deregulate silencers. There's something called the Trump slump right now. Is this because they, so, they're, they're in favor of less noise pollution? <laughs> right. They want to protect everyone's hearings. They're actually a medical organization, <laughs> not just a fellowship, but they're they're very worried about your hearing. No. So gun sales are down $100 million since Donald Trump was elected because there's no boogeyman in the White House that will make they can use to make people afraid their guns are going to be taken away. So... Gun sales are down 10%, about $100 million. There are different ways they can make up that money. One is to deregulate silencers. So for all the people who already have arsenals, I liken it to, as a parent, you know, we have 100 Barbies. Uh, I'm not in the market for Barbies. But then kids want Barbie shoes and they want Barbie cars. They want Barbie dream houses. That's what silencers are. They're the accessories. And they can make a lot of money off of those. So they want to deregulate those. Um, and another way the NRA can make money is by arming, you know, even just a fraction of the 3.2 million teachers in this country. So deregulating silencers is, is really about a profit motive. There are some arguments that I hear people make all the time, and I just want to get your view. Because I, think it's, I think it's very helpful, having gone through the list, to see the kinds of things that someone who has spent a lot of time researching this and caring about it think are effective and not, because it's important to prioritize. And so the fact of the waiting period not being as high a priority or the banning of assault weapons not being quite as high a priority is important, I think, as people think about these things. I think it's also important for people to get, you know, what are, you know, better and more persuasive arguments than others. And one thing I keep hearing people say is, well, look at Australia, which is a very different country. So there's this discussion about a mass shooting in Australia that happened, and then they changed the laws in some ways that I'm not fully familiar with, and then there are no more shootings. Is that, is that just a, a feel-good anecdote about a country that has a completely different population, a completely different set of, you know, sort of political values? They don't have a Second Amendment. They don't have the same number of guns. Is that a useful argument to make or is it not? I think it's useful in that when a country takes action, they actually can stop or slow the rate of gun violence. But to your point, it is a very different country. They don't have a Second Amendment. And guess what? They also don't have an incredibly powerful gun lobby. If you look at a country like Israel, where there are a lot of guns, and you have to be in the military and be trained to use a gun, and then you have to put your gun in a safe by sundown, you know, there are very strong training laws. Uh, there are very strong gun safety laws in Israel, and they act when there was a shooting. I mean, there was a, I think it was a shooting at a bank several years ago, and, and they put stricter laws in place in the days following. And they do not have a high rate of civilian gun violence in Israel. So we haven't even tried trying. That's the whole issue with America. Um, not only have we, have we not tried trying, we've actually undone a lot of our gun laws to make them looser. And look, if more guns and fewer gun laws was going to make us safer, we would be the safest country in the world. Instead, we have the highest rate of gun violence, a 25 times higher rate of gun homicide than our peer nations. The, the experiment that we've allowed the gun lobby to uh, commit on our country is a failure. It didn't work. And it's time for us to say that. Speaking of argument, I'm, I'm a big fan of the hopefulness that argument 
can make a difference combined with, you know, people's emotional connection with something that happens. So if you had to tell people when they discuss things with their neighbors who may feel differently from how they feel, or when they go to town halls, you know, or they become politically active, and in particular, you know, have a chance to ask someone who's running for office and requesting their vote to make an argument in favor of the highest priority new gun measures that you think would be effective, what's the best argument that you think people should make to other people who don't agree with them so that a consensus can be formed? Well, it's such a, it's a broad question. I mean, I would start with the people you're going to have conversations with who aren't going to agree on any kind of gun law, no matter how small, because it's a slippery slope, are gun extremists. They make up a very vocal minority of this country. The vast majority, too many of whom are silent, support stronger gun laws like a background check on every gun sale. Polling shows us that, right? I'm not sure there's any issue that Americans agree on more than the need for a background check on every gun sale or stronger gun laws. It really is about a handful of lawmakers in our state legislatures, in our Congress, who are beholden to the gun lobby and refuse to vote for anything that would be seen as an affront to them. But, you know, reducing gun violence in this country, you know, if you if you equate it, for example, to the changes we made to make driving safer, one law did not solve all of our traffic fatalities. Passing the seatbelt law did not stop everyone from dying in a car crash, and yet we didn't roll back seatbelt laws. Instead, we added airbags, and we put speed limits in place, and we put rumble strips on on our roads, and we did a whole variety of things. It's an evolution. Right. It's an evolution of layers of, you know, it's funny, I haven't thought about this in many years, and not that anybody will care at all, but the first paper I wrote in freshman year of college, my first expository writing paper, was about you know, the conspiracy of auto manufacturers to prevent the requirement of airbags in automobiles. And the funny thing about that was, uh, you know, they didn't want to do it because they thought it was going to raise the cost of cars and they thought that, that people didn't care about it and car sales would go down. Fast forward a few years, once it becomes a requirement in various ways, and then safety becomes culturally something that people care about and something that people look for in cars now you can't watch it. Now there's side airbags, there's airbags coming out of the, you know, the, the windshield wipers. So, so it leads me to, to one of my final questions, and that is, you know, how much of this is politics versus changing culturally how people think about safety? Just like, I think it's a great analogy, just like people had to undergo some transformation in how they thought about cars. Well, I think it's politics that's even prohibiting us from making the cultural change. The NRA leadership absolutely opposes gun safety technology. Again, saying it's a slippery slope or that it won't work. Imagine how much gun violence we would prevent if a gun could only be used by that gun owner, particularly the crisis we have in this country of children getting easy access to firearms and shooting themselves or others. I mean, that doesn't happen in any other high-income country. So say something to someone who is frustrated passionate about the issue, wants to make a difference, a mom, a dad, uh, a teenager, you know, anyone in any part of the country, what can they do after listening to this to get involved, make a difference, get some sensible gun legislation passed? We need every American to use their voice and their vote on this issue to get off the sidelines. If people want to join us, they can text the word ACT to 64433. Uh, We will immediately connect you to a chapter where you live. All caring Americans are welcome, men and women. And we will involve you immediately in our efforts to pass and kill bills in Congress, um, as well as their own state legislatures. Shannon Watts, really appreciate your being on the show on this important issue at this important time. Thank you so much. So everybody, it's been a long show. It's been a tough couple of weeks since Parkland. So I'm going to just wrap up quickly. A lot has been said about some of these young kids out of that high school who I think should be applauded for their bravery and courage in coming forward to speak about the issue, who have been attacked by a lot of people who don't like the message that they're bringing to the country. I think that's disgusting, the attacks on them. But there are other teenagers 
who suffered and survived in that tragedy as well, who have not been on television and have not had the opportunity to lend their voice. And that's because some of them are in the hospital. One of those people is Anthony Borges, who's 15 years old, who acted as a human shield in the doorway to a classroom in which he and 18 other students were hiding from the gunman. And while he was a human shield, got shot five times and is undergoing a number of surgeries in the hospital. Thank God for Anthony Borges and people like him. Get well soon. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Shannon Watts. If you have thoughts about our conversation, feel free to send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for all the kind reviews the past few weeks. It really does mean a lot. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET or send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. And this week, another special thanks to Evan Perkins. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.